Your congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to Psalm 5. Psalm 5, which is the Psalm of David, written to the chief, chief musician with flutes. Let us hear God's holy word. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. I also want to read the... Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism, since our sermon will also use that for a structure in way of questions. I'd like to read Lord's Day 4 from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 9. Does not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Answer, not at all. For God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil... And his own willful disobedience deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Question 10. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Answer. By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sins. And will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed is every one that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Question 11. Is not God then also merciful? Answer. God indeed. God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore his justice requires that sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with Everlasting punishment of body 
and soul. Thus far, Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we open up the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 2, 3, and 4, we've recognized that it's a mini-series on what we call the School of Misery. And we've gone into this school and became students in this school. We recognize the required reading was the law of God. The requirements of this course and this school is perfect obedience. And we received our report card already as well, and it said failure. We are even incapable of this perfect obedience. And the reason for that is because of our fall in paradise becoming guilty in Adam and our depravity, and now by nature we are slaves to sin. Well, now we come in this school of misery to what we would call a class that is a question and answer period, where you can ask the pastor or ask the teacher questions and receive answers. Sometimes I... Maybe if you're a Sunday school teacher, a catechism teacher, or a teacher in school, you recognize that that happens. And students want to ask questions, and they, they love these question and answer periods. Sometimes it's more about stump the pastor or stump the elder or the teacher rather than really having a, a burning question. And yet, nonetheless, they ask the questions. And sometimes there are even questions that are challenging, trying to wrap their minds around difficult truths that seem to contradict one another. Sometimes young people even ask questions in this sense and setting, maybe because they actually are antagonistic to God and His Word. We don't want to judge the hearts by any means, and we love questions and love to give answers. And the catechism comes to this class, this question and answer period, with three burning questions. Three burning questions. And if you're a pastor or an elder trying to answer questions in such a setting, you'd want to turn to the Word of God, wouldn't you? And it's a sense that the psalmist has in Psalm chapter 5. He wants to bring us to the Word. And he's giving us an example in a prayer for guidance in how to answer such questions. And he's praying, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. He wants the Lord to hear his prayer. And as he's praying, he's understanding who God is and yet who man is. He looks up and he sees who God is. And he looks vertically, and he recognizes who man is. And really, they're set in contrast. On the one hand, there is God who is exalted and supreme and holy and righteous and just. And on the other hand, there's evil human beings. It's like polar opposites. And he begins by asking God to hear him because he recognizes that there's no place for evil persons before God in his presence. And so he turns back to God, desiring to worship, desiring guidance, 
in how to bring these things together. As he prays with confidence and praying for protection and blessing from God. Well, that's what we want to approach Lord's Day 4 as well. The same spirit as the psalmist in Psalm 5 in understanding who God is and who we are and seek to answer some challenging questions. And I'm going to put the questions in more of a positive as we look at this with the theme in the school of misery, God's just justice, a question and answer session. And the first question will be, is God's demand just? Is God's demand just? The catechism actually asks a question in the negative. It asks, is God's, does not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in the law what he cannot perform? And the answer is not at all. But when we turn this question and put it in the positive and ask, is God's demand of perfect obedience just? We would have to answer, absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Well, if we look again at Psalm 5, we can understand why. The psalmist comes before the Lord, and he addresses him as Lord. Lord. And that's Yahweh. He addresses him as my King and my God. It's who God is. He is the one who has always been from eternity, the one who is now, and the one who will be to eternity forever the same. The one who is perfectly just and will remain perfectly just. And therefore his demands must be perfectly just as our King and our Master, our God. And so it's because of who God is in His justice. God is absolutely right in everything. If God would be wrong in anything, God would cease to be God. He is absolutely right and just. It's really the reality of who God is. Now, the psalmist recognizes this. And as he looks at man, he recognizes that man is just the opposite. In verse 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. He goes on to say in verse 5, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God, who is perfectly right and just, cannot dwell with those who are imperfect and unjust. And so therefore, God is holy in His justice. And in His execution of justice, He will judge in righteousness. He will judge rightly. Meaning that He's going to reward those who are obedient, and He's going to punish those who are disobedient. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying in verse 6. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. And by faith he looks forward and he says, Lord, in verse 10, pronounce them guilty, O God. Those who are faithless. Those who are filled with destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue and so on. By faith he says that God is going to pronounce them guilty. Cast them 
out in the multitude of their transgressions because they rebelled against God. By faith, he looks to verse 12, that God indeed rewards the righteous. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. God is a rewarder of those who put their trust in Him. He is a God who judges those who are disobedient and rewards those who are obedient. That's why we find in Romans 2, which we'll look at a little more in our second point, but that He renders every man according to his deeds, exactly fitting in his judgment. So God is just in distributing His justice. But the question really hasn't been answered, has it? The student might still raise its hand and say, well, that, that's not really what I asked. What I want to know is how can God's de- de- demands be just because I can't keep His law. That's what we found in Lord's Day 3. We are totally incapable of performing works that are satisfying to God. And therefore, this question comes up, does God do us injustice? Is He not just in His justice in making us do what we cannot do? And the question is very wisely answered, that, and biblically answered, that God made man capable of performing His law. It's not a problem with who God is. It's a problem with who man is. It was a just demand in paradise. There was nothing unfair about God creating Adam perfectly. And he says it is very good. His whole creation was very good. It was not unfair for God to demand of Adam perfect obedience at all. But you say, well, that was Adam. What about me? How can I keep his law perfectly? Well, every time we sin, we, we, we're reminded that we would have done exactly what Adam did in paradise. And it's because of our own willful disobedience. It's not because of Adam's disobedience. It's not because of Satan who is such a great deceiver. No, we cannot blame Satan. We cannot blame Adam. We cannot blame God himself. Because isn't that what we do when we say, God is unjust in making me do something that I cannot do. What we're doing is blaming God. And that's why I said at the beginning, we have to be very careful with these questions. We have to be careful that we're not like that student raising our hand and asking a question that will actually trip up God himself. He is God. He has created us. And He is right, just, in His justice. Demanding that we keep His law perfectly. Although this question may be out of a heart of rebellion, the answer is one of faith and confidence in the Word of God. It goes from questioning whether God's demand is just to acknowledging that I have voluntarily made myself incapable of keeping the demands of God. That is on me and no one else. God is just. I want to move to the second question. 
will God's justice be satisfied? The Catechism asks it, again, more in the negative, and it asks it this way. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And the answer is, by no means. If we ask this in the positive, we could ask, will God's justice be satisfied? Yes or no? And the answer is, absolutely. Absolutely. Young people, I remember maybe as a teenager, and maybe you can identify with this, or maybe it was just me, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you don't have this kind of bad of a heart. I'll be a little bit vulnerable here. But I remember not living a very good lifestyle, having lots of desires that were not biblical at all. And I would lay on my bed at night, And I would know from my catechism, my teachers, my pastor, if I continued living the way I did, I I stood under the wrath of God and the justice of God. And that if I had to meet with him that day, I would perish forever. And yet as I lay on my bed, I would think, but God wouldn't be so bad, would he? To put me in hell forever? Certainly God is a God of love and of grace and of mercy. Certainly he wouldn't cast me off forever. I'm not that bad of a person. And I would try to justify in my own mind how I could continue living a lifestyle that I was living and somehow maybe get to heaven someday. Is that you? Have you ever thought that way? Have those thoughts ever come into your mind? Or am I just that bad of a person? I trust many of us have had some thoughts like this. But when we turn to Psalm 5, the psalmist confesses who we are and how God cannot dwell with us as we are. Notice in verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Absolutely not. Nor shall evil dwell with you. Absolutely not. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Notice these shall not. They will not. Absolutely will not. Matter of fact, God hates the workers of iniquity. He shall destroy those who speak falsehood. He abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. As a matter of fact, Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. His justice will be satisfied. Because God is terribly displeased with all sin, with all wickedness, with all evil, with all workers of iniquity, with the boastful, with those who speak falsehood and the deceitful, bloodthirsty man. This morning we looked at Hebrews 3 and we saw how in Hebrews 3 we're directed back to the Exodus and the hardness of the heart exemplified there in 
in Numbers chapter 14. When the, the spies had come back and reported on the land. Now, now remember, Israel had come out of Egypt. The mighty hand of God. Matter of fact, he gave them such victory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians that they heaped upon them the riches of Egypt to carry out of Egypt and to go, to get out of here. God fed them with manna in the wilderness. He, he, he gave them water from a rock. He was merciful and gracious to them. And then they come to Kadesh in Numbers 14. And there the spies are sent out to the land. And the spies return, and the ten unbelieving spies said, no way we can go into this land. Because the city walls are fortified, and, and, and there's giants in the land, and the people are like grasshoppers. There's no way that we could ever overcome and eat the fruit of this land. The mountains became unscalable. And the seas became uncrossable. Do you think God was just? After showing them so many mighty works in the wilderness already, do you think God was just and right to be upset with them? For not trusting in him? Well, Numbers 14, God was upset with them. And his justice had to be satisfied. And what we find there is God coming to Moses and, and he, he says, How long will this people reject me? What else must I show them? I will strike them with the pestilence and then disinherit them. I will make them. You a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses pleads with God to have mercy. For God's sake. For God's name's sake. Asking them to pardon the people. Forgive them. And yet at the same time, God, for His name's sake, does pardon the people and yet swears in His wrath that they will not enter the land of Canaan. And as a matter of fact, those ten spies that came back, what did they happen to them? Verse 36, now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report died by that plague, that pestilence, before the Lord that very day. God's justice was satisfied. Not only on them, but all those who complained and murmured. What happened? They perished in the wilderness, never entering the promised land. God's justice was satisfied. He takes no pleasure in wickedness. If we look in the New Testament for an example of how God's justice be satisfied, well, Romans 2 pops right out. Romans 1, it's talking about how our conscience testifies of who God is and no one will be left without any excuse. That's what we find in Romans chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself 
For you judge, you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. It's right against those who practice such things. Who will escape is a question. The judgment of God. Because God's justice will be satisfied. And God will judge according to our hearts. Verse 5. But in accordance with the hardness and the impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Because God will come and He will render to each one according to His deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath will be poured out upon them. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew at first and also to the Greek. Now there's no partiality with God. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, Jew or Gentile, woman or man. God is just and will give according to each one, according to their deeds. His justice will be satisfied. There will not be one sin hidden from God. And God will not be able to wink at one sin. He will not be mocked at all. And the wages of sin is death. We see it all around us, don't we? We see it in our culture. A separation from God. We see it by nature for every one of children born to us. We see it all around us. That men and women are born separated from God. Spiritually dead. Thanks be to God. There is that regenerating work that He does in His people. Making them alive. But we see that we live in the midst of death. We see viruses and pain and suffering and hunger and natural, natural disasters and weeds in the field and trials and troubles everywhere we go. The consequences of sin. We see death all around us. Young, middle-aged, Older. In this past week. Just in the past few days. I know of someone young. I know of someone in their middle age. I know someone older. Who passed away. Who died. If we see all of that evidence all around us. That God's justice is satisfied. Do we not believe that His justice will be satisfied when He says that those who do not believe in Him will be in hell forever? Does somehow we think that we'll escape that reality? To 
to be without God? To be under the full wrath of God? Poured out upon us without any kind of dilution? To be apart from His goodness? His grace? To suffer an unspeakable agony for all eternity? Can we even comprehend what eternity is? But that's what all of us deserve. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. I feel that if God would smite me now without hope or offer of mercy to the lowest hell, that's what I deserve. And I feel that if I be not punished for my sins, or if there not be some plan by which my sins can be punished in another, I can't understand how God can be just at all. How shall he be the judge of all the earth if he suffer offenses to go unpunished? God can't be God if he doesn't justly satisfy his wrath against sin. He's unchangeable. And knowing something about who God is, and knowing something about His justice and His holiness, and the reality of these truths, Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And knowing that it is called today, today the accepted time, the day of grace, we seek to persuade men because we believe in hell. In eternal punishment. But I should also be quick to ask. Do we also believe in the mercy of God? Because that's what the psalmist believed. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. You see, when we know something of the mercy of God. That's what the psalmist knew here. He knew that God had some kind of way, some way that His justice could be satisfied and yet be just at the same time as He had mercy on him. Do you think the psalmist believe that God's justice would be satisfied? Or do you think the psalmist just thought he would overlook? From the whole of the psalm, we know that he doesn't think he will overlook sin. Wink at sin. But he comes into his holy temple in the fear of God, asking that the Lord would lead him in righteousness, in paths of righteousness. Will God's justice be satisfied? Absolutely. And for the psalmist, that was actually a comfort. And for each one of us, that ought to be a comfort. Because God would cease to be God if His justice wasn't satisfied. And for the psalmist, recognizing that God's justice was satisfied 
allowed him to have mercy on him, but also it gave him a great confidence to live before the face of God and man. Lead me, O Lord, verse 8, in your righteousness. Why? Because my enemies. Because of my enemies. And who are the enemies of the psalmist? They are the enemies of God. Notice verse 9. There is no faithfulness in their mouth, the enemy's mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. Why? Because they have rebelled against you. My enemies are God's enemies, and God's enemies are my enemies, says the psalmist. And I rejoice. I rejoice in the justice of God when He vindicates His name and He declares His justice and His rightness against all evildoers. Pronounce them guilty, O God, is His battle cry. He delights in the justice of God. Delights in the fact that God's justice will be satisfied. Well, you think the psalmist is a little harsh here? What about the saints in heaven? In Revelation 19. Revelation 19, we, we have a window into heaven. As... As the citizens in heaven are exulting over the fall of Babylon, that great horror. And what do we hear as we put our ear up to the window of heaven? John tells us, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven singing, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. Do you hear that? Because true and righteous are His judgments. That's what they're praising God for in heaven. They're not even praising Him for His mercy and His grace. True and righteous are His judgments, for He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. He has avenged the blood of His people, his martyrs, his servants. He has pronounced them guilty and delivered his justice. His justice is satisfied. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And as the smoke of their torment ascends into heaven, they're singing hallelujah. Amen. Maybe we can't comprehend the comfort that the justice of God being satisfied affords us. But I remember being in seminary and some of my colleagues could in a far greater way than I could. One particular individual is from Syria. And because of all the persecution and the trials of even just getting to Grand Rapids, he took great delight in the fact that God's 
justice would be satisfied and he would reward every one according to their deeds. And he could identify with Revelation 19 and Psalm 5. Pronounce them guilty, O Lord. And he would sing hallelujah to know that God's justice will be satisfied. Maybe you can identify with that more than I can in life. I hope we never have to identify with it to that kind of extent. But nonetheless, the fact that God's justice will be satisfied is a great comfort. Well, if God's demand is just, and it is, and if his justice will be satisfied, and it will, how can God then be merciful? The Catechism asks it this way, is God not then merciful? And the Confession says, indeed He is. But how? Well, we know for one thing that there's no conflict with God. Matter of fact, Isaiah 45 verse 1 says, there's no other God. There's not two gods, a just God and a a loving God. There's one God. There's no God besides me, he says. Very clearly. A just God and a Savior. And we can turn to Psalm 85. And there in Psalm 85, we can see that mercy and truth are met together. They're not in conflict. The righteousness and peace, they've kissed each other, embraced each other. The psalmist is understanding who man is, and yet he goes to the house in the multitude of mercy. And for this to come together, we need to understand that God is mercifully just and justly merciful at the same time. Well, how? There's only one way. Only one. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose mercy with a capital M, who God gave to us to come to this earth, to walk among us, to to have to come under the law and to have all of our sins placed upon him. And there to go to Gethsemane and squirm as a, a worm in the dust and no man. As he began to bear the wrath of God against sin. Not his sin. My sin. To come before Pontius Pilate. To be condemned as a criminal that he was because of my sin. Not his sin. To have pronounced upon him the cursed death of the cross, of the tree, because of not his sin, but my sin. And to hang there between heaven and hell, heaven and earth, and to experience our hell, my hell, 
when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There God satisfies his justice by pouring out upon his own son what you and I deserve, eternal hell, so that he can be merciful. congregation, the school of misery was not titled the school of despair. The school of misery points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the remedy of our misery, the antidote for our misery. And in Him, there is forgiveness. There is life. And we can come into his house in the multitude of mercy. Because he is merciful. That's our only comfort in life and death. That we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it's in him that there's mercy. Today, we look at questions. Questions that really strip us of our own righteousness. Strip us of any excuses for not coming to Him. Strip us of our foolish questioning even. So that we might come humbly before His cross and look up and see His mercy. Mercy for sinners who deserve the just wrath of God. To sit there under the cross to be sheltered in his blood. It's not a school of misery. It's not a school of despair. Yes, it's a school of misery. That's who we are. And the more we see of the glory and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, the more we see how miserable we really are. But the more we see of him, the more we fall in love with Him in the shelter of His grace and His love and His mercy. Do you know that today is the day you hear this message? And today is a day of grace. A day where you can have a day to confess before God all your sins. And to take shelter under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it a good day today? Would it be a good day to do that today? Or would you say maybe tomorrow is a better day? There's not a single passage in all of Scripture that tells you to to wait till tomorrow. Today. It's a day. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's going to continue in misery. Open your heart to see his mercy, his grace, his love for sinners such as you and me. Because that's what extols God. He delights in mercy. 
He delights to invite us in His mercy. His mercy is great. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. To all those who come to Him, He is tender and loving, abundant in mercy. But He's also just and righteous. For those who continue to harden their heart and say, tomorrow's a better day. Today is a day to come to Him. Amen. Lord, we bow before You. A God who is just and holy and right in all Your works and ways, Your judgments are perfect. We can't comprehend this, Lord, but You have seen fit from eternity to judge Your own Son for our sins. Lord, open our eyes to the beauty and the awe of such a salvation, such a gospel truth. And we would flee to the shelter that is found in you and in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear our prayer and go with us for Jesus' sake. Amen.